Good morning, guys. Thank you. All right. It's good to see you today. Uh, I want to share with you briefly um, what we're looking at today. It's something I am super excited about and something in my experience that doesn't happen enough in the church. My experience has been that most people who come to churches tend to walk around with a question or two that they harbor deep in their soul that for certain reasons they just don't ask. Sometimes, maybe you've been there, right? Have you ever had a question about God, theology, the Bible, something that struck you and you're like, I I don't know what to do about this. Maybe I'm afraid of the ramifications of the answer to this and you don't know who to ask. Been there? Have you been here? I've got a question and I know who to ask, but I'm afraid to. Because if I ask it, it's going to reveal that maybe I don't know. And I've been a Christian for 38 years, and I'm supposed to know answers like this, but I don't, so you don't ask it. You know what I mean? Or maybe it's a question that's just out there. You ever get the weird ones? You ever like reading something, or you hear something, or, or, or you're just thinking about God, and, and like these, just these weird off-the-wall questions come, and it's like it sounds too ridiculous to ask out loud, so you never ask it. You know what I mean? Guys, today is your chance. Now, I want to show you something here before we get started with how this is going to work. That's really important to me and and something that I want to see be a part of the fiber of who we are as a church. And it starts here. It's with a desire to be real. Just read this. I want you to mentally underline the phrase, that Christians are real people. That sounds off, but have you ever been around certain believers or, or, or certain churches or certain experiences like that where everyone seemed to wear a certain kind of mask? You know, you're going to church, so you put on church mask. You know how it goes. You're driving here, you're on the way to church, you're at each other's throat. I mean, if you could kill your wife and not be convicted of murder, you would have, you know, that kind of thing. But then you walk in the doors and it's, hi, honey, you, You know the moment that I'm talking about? You're ready to throttle your kids there at each other's throat, but you come into church and everything's got to look pristine. All right? There's this thing called church mask that people will often wear that gives the illusion that Christians are supposed to be people who've got it all together. They, they don't have real struggles, deep struggles, deep doubts. They don't have real problems. And guys, there is nothing farther from the truth. You know, we who choose to follow Jesus are real people, which means we have real doubts, real struggles, real challenges and real issues in this world, and some of them are dark. And what church is about, guys, is not hiding behind some veneer and pretending that they don't exist or pretending that a simple answer will take care of it all, but it's dealing with it head on so that we can process it. This goes on to say this. That's why we believe it's important as a community to be honest about our shortcomings, authentic in our lives, and sincere in what we teach. We want to be humble as a church and express our faith in a way that's genuine. Which means in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to ask your questions. 
the weird ones, the odd ones, the heretical ones, the off-the-wall ones, the ones that you think are too simple but you're afraid to ask, and the ones that you think are so complex that there's no answer for. We are going to invite you to ask them, and what I am going to do for the next 20 to 30 minutes is try to field and address your questions here on the spot and as forthright and honest and as, and as open in a way as I know how. Does that make sense? Now, here's where you come in. You know, a lot of times it's easy, isn't it? You just kind of come to church and you don't want to be noticed. You know, you don't want to stick out. You, 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 don't want, you don't want to get engaged because there's something out there when you engage that starts to get risky. There's something else really important to us here at Fellowship of Faith, and it's a willingness to take risks, and I want you to read this before we begin. Now, I've met people who have struggled with with Christ and with Christianity and say things like this. Maybe you've heard it. Christianity is a crutch. Christianity is is something just for, for, for people who are weak. Christianity is for those people who can't face reality head on, so they have to hide behind something, as though Christianity is this insular safety net of sorts that keeps you from any risk or engaging in this world. But you know what? I found the exact opposite to be true. Sometimes the most dangerous place to be is in the center of God's will. In following Christ and growing in your faith, it takes risks. You will not grow in your faith if you are not willing to risk to take a step out into places that are uncomfortable for you deep in your heart because it's at that place that God will grow you, which means this. This morning, I want to invite you to take a step out and risk. Take out a step and, and, and risk having your question be heard. Risk putting your, your heart on the line this morning. Risk opening up those places and thinking about things and asking things and wrestling with things that you would rather either shove away, deny, ignore, or just not deal with. Now, here's how it's going to work. See this number here? I want to invite you this morning to pull out one of these. All right? I want to invite you to pull out one of these, and for one of the only times you're ever going to hear me say this during this time, I want you to invite you to take them out, turn them on, and what you can do is this. I want you to text in your questions to this number right here, 815-314-0363. That's 815-3140-FOF. All right, so cheesy and lame, isn't it? Text your questions in. I will receive them anonymously. And I will do my best to answer them here this morning and address the questions you're asking. Make sense? So guys, at this point, the ball's in your court. It's up to you. And let's see how we can grow together as a community. Now, I will... uh. As texts start to come in, I will give a caveat. Maybe you don't have a phone here with you today, but you got a question. I want to invite you to take an even bigger risk. All right? Here's how it works. Go like this. All right? 
If I see that, I will try to navigate it in with what we're doing. And if you don't mind being seen and heard, ask your question, because I guarantee if you're asking it, other people here are too. You are not alone, and let's just see where this takes us, all right? Here we go. All right. Whoa. All right. Let me scroll down and get us going here. Why is it so easy for some people to share Christ when it's so difficult for me? That bothers me. You know, I just want to encourage you. The fact that it bothers you is a good thing. You know why? Not because you're doing something wrong per se. It's because it shows something about you. It shows that you want it. It shows that it's important to you. It shows that you've got a hunger for it. And there's a lot of people in this world who it might even be easier for that don't hunger for it like you do. So praise God for that because he's stirring something in you. Now, how do you deal with it? It goes back to the risk thing. It's tough, but there's no way around it, guys. Sometimes you just got to step out of that comfort zone, take that leap of faith, and be willing to be vulnerable and let people see your heart and share with them What's so important about Jesus to you? You know, sharing Jesus is not about knowing all the right answers. It's not about somehow coming along and pontificating some sermon or some deep truth. It's saying, this is why I love him. This is what he means to me. I bet you could do that. That's all that it takes. Be willing to let your heart be seen. Great question. Okay, next one. Um, Are all branches of Christianity the same in God's eyes? All right? There's a couple of different ways that I can approach this. And uh, go with me on this. Are all different Christian denominations or, 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 or strains or traditions or beliefs of Christianity the same? No, they're not. They're different. That's why they have different worship practices, sometimes different beliefs that, that code who they are. And I want to encourage you on something. That's a good thing. God is a God of wonderful diversity. I mean, wrap your brain around this. Over 750,000 species of cataloged insects. insects. You know what I do? I step on them. You know what God does? He creates something that I view as so insignificant and worthless in such wondrous array. The fact that different believers are worshiping in different ways emphasizing different truths about who God is. Yes, there's differences, and they are good. But does God look down on them and say, you're my child, you're my child, you're my child, and I love you? You bet he does. I got three kids. None of them are the same, and I love them all as my own. Does that make sense? Now, this is not to say all religions are the same and things like that. That's a different question that goes beyond the scope. But hopefully that addressed what you were asking. Here's a great one. I struggle with complete belief at times. How can I call myself a follower of Christ when I have doubts? I want to share with you something that hopefully helps you see this so radically different. Is courage the absence of fear? I would argue no. I would argue courage can't exist without fear. Courage is putting your fear aside and doing what needs to be done anyway. Does that make sense? That's brave. Faith is a lot like courage. You don't need faith if there's certainty. 
Because the very definition of faith is trusting something where there isn't complete certainty. Are you with me? Faith, like courage in many ways, is putting your doubt aside or admitting your doubt and saying, despite this doubt, I am holding on to you anyways. I worry about believers who say they never have doubts. Because to me, that says, here's a person who's not wrestling deeply enough. Here's a person who isn't being introspective enough. Here's a person who isn't going after it enough. Jeez, following God is, is tough, and doubts are normal. Do you know that even Jesus doubted? You can challenge me on that if you will, but I'm throwing it out right now. Jesus doubted, and if he did, so can you. But he trusted anyway. And guys, trust in the face of doubt, that is faith. You with me? Great question. Let's keep going. (laughs) All right, this is a fun one. Who were those people Cain was sent to live with? All right, let me frame this. You know the story of Adam and Eve in the Bible, right? First two people made. Adam and Eve have three kids that are listed off the bat. There's Cain, there's Abel, and then a little bit while later, there's this guy named Seth that comes along that they give birth to, all right? Cain kills his brother Abel. As punishment on Cain, God sends him out, gives him a mark called the mark of Cain. You ever hear of that? Like in pop, you know, culture? Gives him the mark of Cain so other people will not attack him. And you're going, wait, Adam, Eve, Abel's dead. Who are we talking about here? Bible doesn't say. I'll give you some options. Some options that people have postulated. Could be Adam and Eve. All right, doesn't do it for me, but it's one way of dealing with the text. Here's another way. Adam and Eve had more kids. It doesn't list them all. We know they had more kids. It could be the clan. And again, you read Genesis, man. These guys are having these like huge lifespans. I mean, if they started popping them out at like 18 years old, I mean, there could have been hundreds by the time that this happened. Who knows? All right? Here's another theory that's on the table. And uh, again, this is all about just open, honest conversation. Were Adam and Eve the only people? In other words, are Adam and Eve mentioned because they were the only people or because they were the people among all people God created that happened to engage in the fall and be instrumental to the promise? Now, there's pros and cons to each of those theories that I've pulled out. You can wrestle with those further, and guess what? Text in your follow-up question if you'd like to keep going. All right? Help settle an argument. That's always a dangerous way to start, all right? The wife always wins. Help settle an argument I'm having at work. Are ghosts real? Okay? And not demons posing as dead people. Actual ghosts, which is in parentheses. Now I'll tell you, my gut reaction is to say, what we would think of as a ghost by this definition, meaning the soul or the spirit of a human being who dies that continues to kind of like zoom around and operate in this world and haunt people and like hang out at 7-Eleven or whatever they do, all right? Does that actually exist? And, And what I want to tell you is no. Now, I believe in spirits. I believe in spiritual forces. I believe in angels and demons, and I believe that they can pose. To which I would say, when your soul dies, heaven or hell, all right? And I think that's the baseline to operate on. However, have you ever noticed how the Bible just likes to mess with your baselines? 
And there are a few instances in the Bible, and I will share one with you in particular, that throws a slight fly in this ointment. It's the story of Saul, not Paul Saul, King Saul in the time of King David, all right? You with me? It goes bad for Saul. The dude gets messed up. The wiring goes bad in the head. He starts making these evil choices. It debases to the point that as the king of Israel, he's sneaking out in the dark under the cover of darkness to meet with witches like out on the outskirts of the kingdom. And he meets with this particular witch that he asks, you know that prophet Samuel, can you like bring him back? Because I got questions to ask this prophet. And this witch conjures up Samuel, and Samuel shows up mildly ticked, might I add, in the story, and starts to communicate with Saul. Was that actually Samuel? Well, some would say, no, it can't be. It can't be because of this. But you know, it doesn't say it was a ghost. It just says Samuel came and Samuel spoke. To which says to me there's baselines, but sometimes we can't be so confident to know everything. And sometimes I think God lays things out and throws little flies in the ointment, so that's the best I can do for you. Great question. Here we go. Let's see. It flipped and then it disappeared on me. Give me a second. Question on purgatory. Let me just kind of sum it up. Um, what is it? What's it like? What's it about? Is it real? All right. In Roman Catholic theology, there is this belief, this concept that developed of a place called purgatory. And here's what it is. It's a holding pattern for those who are believers in Christ to where they need to go before they can go into heaven. So it's like if you die, you, you, you don't just go straight into heaven. You have to go to purgatory first. Now, it's not for people who are condemned to hell. It's only for believers in Catholic theology. And the idea behind purgatory is this, that only the righteous and only the holy can enter into the kingdom of heaven. So if you die and you are still steeped in degrees of, well, let's face it, all of us, unholiness, unrighteousness, it needs to be purged. Better, it needs to be refined. And so purgatory will be described as a refiner's fire. Does that sound pleasant to be in? And neither is purgatory. But what it's meant to do is purify you through fire, so to speak, burning off the dross of sinfulness in your life to make you pure to go into heaven. In my opinion, there is no biblical support for the idea of purgatory. Whether via specific story or proof text or passage, and more importantly, theologically. Because theologically, the message that I read from beginning to end of the New Testament is that when Christ dies for you, his righteousness counts as your righteousness. That when God looks at you, despite your sin, despite your unholiness, he sees Christ. Your sins are paid for. God says, not guilty. God says, you are righteous. And God says, welcome to the kingdom of heaven. Hopefully that helped you on that journey there. Were Adam and Eve married? Now, let me unpack this one because this has actually become a more pertinent question in recent days um, in light of people living together before marriage, in light of gay marriage controversies and things like that. You got to ask yourself, what do you mean by married? See, if marriage to you means some dude in a robe with a woman in a pretty dress and a guy in a tux standing there and saying a magic formula or phrase, 
There is no evidence that Adam and Eve ever went through that ceremony. But did Adam and Eve exemplify, dare I say even in a prototypical way, the mandates and ideas that the Bible later lays out about this thing called marriage? You better believe it. Lifelong commitment of a monogamous relationship with each other till death do us part, which was never supposed to come anyway, for all that marriage was supposed to entail. Wrestle on that, if you will. Let's switch gears. Over the last year, I feel like I have lost touch with Christ. I still pray and come to church. I know he's with me every day, but I don't know how to get the feeling of comfort back. Let me just say, I am so with you. I am so with you, and let me encourage you. What you are experiencing is normal. You are not alone, and God has not abandoned you. The fact that you say, I know he is with me every day, is where faith comes in amidst doubt, holding on to that. The hard thing about feelings is we can't just conjure them up or turn them on and off like a light switch, isn't it? Have you ever like, wanted to fall back in love with someone and didn't know how? Have you ever not wanted to love someone and didn't know how to shut it off? Have you ever struggled to forgive someone and didn't know how to bring that feeling back? I want to encourage you, first of all, that your feelings are not the same as your spiritual place in life or your faith. That what's true about you in reality is true despite your feelings. And this is what's true. Despite what you feel, God loves you. Despite what you feel, he is close with you. Despite what you feel, he, he constantly calls your name. You know, I really want to encourage you, if you're here today, if you've been struggling with this for a long time, to come talk to me. Let's process this one together. Maybe there's some things that we'll reveal to help you on that way. Maybe it's talking to a counselor a little bit too because sometimes our feelings, well, they're dictated by all kinds of complex things, aren't they? But let's, let's talk. I don't know who you are, so just come find me or text me your name or something. And we'll take it from there, okay? Great question. Thanks for asking it. There has to be limits to Christ's forgiveness, doesn't there? It would sure seem that way, wouldn't it? I mean, you see some of the things that people do to each other, that people become, and you go, how can you love that? God, how can you forgive that? I mean, the awfulness and terribleness that, that how... Guys, that's precisely what is so mind-blowing about God. If you're going to trust the Bible and Jesus and what he said, my grace is limitless. My grace is never-ending. Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. You can never trump me on forgiveness. Sometimes that takes a big step of faith, but God says it's true, and I encourage you. Hold on to that complete forgiveness. It is the most redeeming, restoring thing in this world. What is a good commentary on Zechariah? I I have been looking for one for years, and I am coming to the conclusion that it's just not out there. Are you familiar with Zechariah? He's a prophet in the Old Testament. He's one of the books at the end that you never read, you know? Um... Commentaries are books that scholars will write that give comments to help you understand that book. And this is, just read Zechariah someday. It's weird stuff. 
Um, yeah, if you find it, let me know. Here's a follow-up. If there is no theological support of purgatory, why do the Catholics believe it? How did it come to be? Did somebody make it up? There's a few layers of questions there. Let's start with this. Why do they still believe it? Here is the fundamental difference between Roman Catholicism and what's called Protestantism, which includes basically everyone else except the Eastern Orthodox, okay? Churches like Fellowship of Faith pride themselves and root themselves on a basis that says the Word of God is the foundational and governing source for all that we do and believe. Put another way, you go back to the Bible. If the Bible says it's true, if the Bible says it's not true, it's not true, and where the Bible leaves gray areas, don't be too dogmatic because don't put a thus saith the Lord out there where God might not have given a thus saith the Lord. That is an overstatement, but it works for our purposes. All right? Roman Catholics say, yes, the Bible is true. But they add it with something that they will call tradition in a capital T. Now, tradition, as I say, it doesn't mean, well, yeah, like on Christmas Eve, we light candles and then go to grandma's house. I mean, that's a cool tradition, but that's not what they mean. What they mean is the thought process and development of how the faith has progressed from the Bible over the past 2,000 years. So they look at all the thinkers, all the historians, all the comments, all the development of theologies, and those come to carry equal weight. Well, from a Protestant's point of view, over 2,000 years of church history, there's been a lot of amazing stuff that's developed. But everything, and sometimes trains of thought continue to build and grow and begin to find theological rootings that start to take steps out that might not be justified. Are you with me? And from there, certain theologies will develop. Purgatory happens to be one of them. And it's rooted out of this basic idea of how do you get right with God? Because if you start with the basis that I need intrinsically to have my act together before I can come into the gates of heaven, then you need some kind of process to begin dealing with that. But if you begin with a starting point that says God's righteousness becomes my own through Christ, suddenly you've circumvented having to deal with this theological conundrum. Does this make sense? Hopefully. If not, come talk to me. Um, but that's where it comes from and how it's developed over the centuries. All right. Let me refresh. Here's one. What is the age of accountability? Familiar with the term? Age of accountability, for those of you who don't know, it means this. It means that God does not hold people accountable for their actions or sins until they reach a certain age. So what that would mean is that like, if there's hypothetically some two-year-old who doesn't know sin versus righteousness, who doesn't know good versus bad in some kind of way, that let's say they were to die, God wouldn't judge them or punish them because he doesn't hold them accountable yet. Make sense? Sometimes you need to answer questions with questions or find other ways. Christianity is divided on this question. In the spirit of what we're doing today, I'm going to tell you what I believe. I believe the question's wrong. I don't believe there is an age of accountability. I believe God holds everyone accountable 
And I would even say from the time before they were born, from the time they are conceived. I believe that what's more accurate to the biblical teaching is that all of us are sinners from the time we are conceived, and sin deserves judgment. Now, you may be asking, so like, what, what, what did a two-year-old do wrong? I want to encourage you to think about sin differently. Not in terms of simply action, what you do or don't do, but to think of sin more as a condition of who you are. And all of us from the time we are conceived are messed up, got a dark side, evil within us, corrupt, fallen, broken, less than what God intended. And all of us are held liable for our sin. The answer to sin is not figuring out at what age God might let you off the hook. The answer to sin is always Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. And may I ask you, did Jesus Christ die for infants too? Let that inform your thinking on this subject. Great, great question. I saw one pop, there it is, and then it... Are there any unforgivable sins? If so, how do I know that I've, committed, that I've never committed one? You ever get afraid of this? Um, let, let me phrase this in a few different ways. Out of the bat, I'm going to say this. There is no sin too big to be forgiven. All right? Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Now, do you remember how we talked earlier about flies and the ointment and we brought up the Samuel thing with ghosts? I'm going to tell you two places in the Bible that has created a big fly in the ointment for believers. One is this, Mark 3. It's paralleled in Matthew 12 and Luke 11, I believe, but let's go with Mark 3. Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, every sin and blasphemy against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the, whole, but the sin against the Holy Spirit, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Underline, will never be forgiven. Not in this age, nor in the age to come. You ever wish you didn't read something? What do you do with that? It gets compounded and, and, and streamlined sometimes with this out of Hebrews chapter 6, where it says, those who have tasted the heavenly gift, those who have seen the glory of God, those who have, who have experienced his blessings and fall away will not be brought back into repentance because to their loss, they would be crucifying the Son of God all over again, which makes you also go, oh my gosh, I am so freaked out right now. Uh, all right? Let me steer you through this in the briefest of terms. The sin against the Holy Spirit or the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, is rejection of Christ. It's unbelief. I won't unpack the reasons why right now. So yes, there are those in this world who reject Christ and on judgment day will answer for their sins. That's what it's talking about there. And how do you know if you've done it or not? This is a simple question to ask. Are you afraid you did it and you run back to God? Because if you are, that's repentance. And it says you will never be brought back to repentance if you've done it. So if you are in any way concerned about it, worried about it, repentant about it, oh God, please not me about it, you know you're not there, right? So take heart, trust in God's mercy, it is limitless upon you. Fantastic question. Um, are we sure, are we actually sure that Jesus and everyone in the Bible existed? 
What if it was just uh, like a man who randomly just decided to do, uh, to write a book and told people these things were true and just started a religion by himself? Fantastic, awesome question. Let's unpack a little bit about what you mean by actually sure. Do you mean by it this? Is there evidence from gobs and gobs and gobs of sources, both Christian and non-Christian, that a man named Jesus walked the earth, preached this message, had these followers, this faith developed, and was known or claimed to have risen from the dead? You better believe it. It's everywhere. There is no person in classical antiquity who is more historically attested to than Jesus Christ. If you reject Jesus Christ on historical evidence, then line everyone else up as well in history because there is less written evidence for them, less historic evidence for them than there is for Jesus. So just say none of them existed. No one existed before like 1800 AD, all right? Um, But let's get into the question now of what if he was just a guy who decided to do these things? I want to recommend a couple of books to you because this question goes a little bit deeper and there's some phenomenal answers and ways of thinking about it. One is this. It's called More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. It asks the question in the most basic of terms. Is Jesus just more than a carpenter with some good ideas? Do you want a copy of the book? Come find me. I'll give one to you after the service, all right? Here's another one. The Case for Christ by a guy named Lee Strobel. Same concept, gets a little denser, written a little bit more recently. Here's a third for those of you who like to swim at the deep end of the pool. Read anything by C.S. Lewis, and I would begin with something like mere Christianity. All right? These are great questions, and you need to engage at those beyond the 60 seconds I gave it here today. And I just looked up. We are at time, but I will close with one last question that I got here today. Do dogs go to heaven? Yes, but not cats. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Okay, now wait. So so those of you who are like nine and your cat just died last week, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, uh, let's let's come up for air. Um, To answer the question seriously, the Bible doesn't really come out in like a hardcore, like, all dogs go to heaven kind of way. I'm going to tell you what I think can be pieced together in a very reasonable way theologically. If you're defining heaven as eternity, your conception of heaven is messed up. See, eternity for you is not your soul leaving your body and going and doing like the moonwalk somewhere. The sp- and I don't mean the Michael Jackson moonwalk. I mean like, you know, spacewalking. Because um, that would be weird if it was moonwalking for eternity, wouldn't it? Sorry, if your conception of heaven is going off and just kind of like free-floating as a disembodied spirit for all eternity to come, that is not the biblical promise. The biblical promise is resurrection. Resurrection does not mean your soul coming and floating around like the ghost thing, okay? It means physical, real body. When Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't just a soul coming out of the ground. It was a body coming back to life in a transformed way. He ate fish. People touched his scars. He hugged people, talked to people, hung out with people. That is your eternity in Christ. It is a physical resurrection. Before Christ comes again and resurrection occurs, for those who are in Christ, our soul goes to live and be with Jesus for a while, and we wait 
because it is still not the fulfillment of the promise. We wait for the fullness to come. Now, will your dog's soul be like cruising around in that waiting period in heaven while we wait for resurrection? I don't know. All right? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe they're just kind of like buried in the ground and they're just kind of, you know, and, and that's it. But when resurrection comes and God restores all things and reverses death, does that include the pet you love? Did they die? Think about it. Guys, I want to invite you to rise. And uh, I just want to say, hey, way to go. I got to maybe like a quarter of what I saw texted in. Time just doesn't allow it. And I wish we could spend two more hours because the questions you are asking are good and they're deep. And it shows that God is doing something in there. And your willingness to step out and start asking that and wrestling with that and beginning the conversation, which I hope today, what today is all about, you know, it's, it's, it's testimony to that. I just want to invite you to pray with me this morning before we close. And, and God, we, we come before you. And God, you know, I just think about how your ways are so above our ways. God, you, you have woven things into the tapestry of our lives in this world, things that we haven't even thought to ask. But thank you, God, for your wisdom, for your truth that, that you reveal to us and that we get the chance to wrestle with. God, may we hunger for it. May we hunger to know you more, hunger to want to know what you're like and hunger to know your way. Make us hungry, God, to know what you're up to in this world. Lord, help us to stand with wonder and awe as we ask questions and glean insights to see how amazing, how holy, how wise, how beautiful, how good you are. God, sometimes we can't articulate it, so in this moment, just take our heart of worship. Take our praise and our thanks. Thanks for this time together, God. In your name we pray.